Okay, hello everyone and welcome to the Actus Podcast, Talking CDI, the nation's only program dedicated to the clinical documentation integrity profession. The Actus Podcast is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bring you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and to Actus. Today, Wednesday, December 18th, marks our 139th program and our last of 2019. So my name is Brian Murphy, Director of Actus, the Association of Clinical Documentation Integrity Specialists, and I'm your host for today's program, Diagnosis Potpourri. <laughs> today's show is supported by 3M Health Information Systems. 3M is committed to eliminating revenue cycle waste, creating more time to care, and leading the shift from volume to value-based care. Its innovative software and services help close the loop between clinical care and revenue integrity, while helping providers, payers, and government agencies reduce costs and enable more informed care. So this is part three of a three-part clinical series supported by 3M. You may recall that in the recent past, we've covered types of anemia and ARDS and respiratory failure on our two prior programs in the series. So I'm joined today by my co-host at left, Sharm Brody. Uh, Sharm is an RNCCDS and a full-time instructor for us here with the, at Actus for our CDI boot camps. She has a lot of experience in the healthcare industry, more than 35 years, including uh, multiple areas of nursing as well as uh, CDI consulting. You might recognize her too from serving on our CCDS certification committee and writing for our publications, CDI Journal and CDI Strategies. So welcome back to the program, Charm. Thanks for having me, Brian, and happy holidays to everyone. Yeah, absolutely. All right, next I'd like to introduce our industry uh, guest today. We have with us Don Valdez. Don is the CDI Manager of Education at Ardent Health Services in Nashville, Tennessee. Don has been a neuroscience ICU nurse for more than 20 years and now teaches CDI specialists about various CDI topics. She has a background in legal nursing and was a medical bill auditor for the payer side of healthcare for 12 years. Prior to her current role, she was a nursing preceptor in the neuro ICU at Emory University Hospitals. Dawn, uh, you probably recognize her from other appearances with Actus. She spoke at our 2018 conference, uh, Taking the Mystery Out of Encephalopathy in San Antonio. She's been on the Actus podcast before, and I'm very pleased to have her back to talk some diagnosis potpourri. Welcome to the program, Dawn. Thank you, Brian. All right. I'm calling this one Diagnosis Pro Paris because we're going to cover a lot of different topics, and I also wanted to be able to use the name, the the, the, the word potpourri in a show title. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's go ahead with our uh, poll question, as we always ask. Uh, this one, because we're we are covering a number of different topics, this is not specific to today's topic. It's really about uh, the Actus podcast in general and sort of helping me frame what we want to do with this program in 2020. So I'm asking everyone today, what would you like to see out of the Actus podcast in 2020? Um, would you like to see more clinical and diagnosis chart review topics? Perhaps you'd like to see more management focused topics, um, more stretch topics, meaning outpatient CDI in new settings, uh, for example. 
Uh, would you like to see a broader industry focus, denials, coding, regulations, maybe technology, or other? If you do have an innovative idea or some out-of-the-box idea, leave it in the comments section. I'd love to see what that is. Again, what would you like to see out of the Actus podcast in 2020? More clinical topics, management topics, uh, maybe some more stretch topics, uh, a broader industry focus in general, denials, coding, regs, rules, for example, um, or other. This is really going to help me for, for next year. I've got the first couple shows lined up, but um, definitely, I'm, as I always say at the end of every show, I'm looking for ideas and suggestions to make sure that the Actus podcast is the best show we can make it and of most relevance to you, the CDI professional. So let's, we're going to go ahead and close this out. We've got about 75% of our audience that has voted. And as we always do, we will come back uh, to the results in just a few minutes. All right, as I mentioned, our guest today is uh, Don Valdez. Don, welcome to the show, and thanks for being a part again of the Actus podcast. Um, as you. I mentioned, uh, yeah, absolutely. Love having you back on. Uh, today's topic is diagnosis potpourri. Again, it's just a fancy way of saying we're covering a wide range of topics today. Uh, we get I get questions sent to me throughout the programs, and this show is a compilation of some questions. These are actually received from listeners, and I wanted to give them a little more justice and base the show around that. So we'll go ahead and get started with these topics, mostly all clinical in nature, um, and they, they, they range on different topics. So the first one is was from our show that we did earlier, one of our uh, clinical series on uh, acute respiratory failure. And the question reads, I still struggle with my physicians with acute respiratory failure. They feel if the patient is not on oxygen at home and have to have oxygen at the hospital that they're in failure. But I feel it's uh, hypoxia. Do you have any suggestions for this dilemma? Yeah, that's an interesting um, dilemma, and I don't think it's that uncommon for people to be at different ends of the spectrum when you come to respiratory failure. It can be a little bit of a confusing diagnosis, but I guess the very first thing I would say is that you really do need to have the focus on objective measures. So when, if the doctors feel that the patient is in failure, you know, what are the medically accepted standards that they're going by? What's their clinical rationale? What are their measures? That would be the first thing. So there might need to be conversations between specific providers that you see trends in with this type of thing. Now, the second thing to look at is the objective measure. So what's the PO2? Do you have an ABG where you can look at that? You know, do you have a, a low SAT? SAT below 90 is very indicative of failure. Um, you know, even if they're on two liters, somebody can be in acute respiratory failure. But when you say that they're on oxygen at the hospital, what are we talking about? Are we talking about for an hour after a surgery and they've just extubated them? Are we talking about a COPD or that maybe got suctioned and then was clear and was back on room air? Or are we talking about some continual oxygenation needs? And most importantly, what is your patient doing clinically? There, there should be some tachypnea, some struggle, some dyspnea on exertion or dyspnea when, you know, when they're talking, they can't speak in complete sentences. 
So it's not just about the numbers. It's about what the patient looks like and what they're doing. So taking that whole clinical scenario at that 10,000 foot, look at your objectives, gather your clues, gather your data, and then look at your patient and look at what their respiratory system is like. Now, remember, when a patient is struggling in distress or failure, the immediate treatment is going to be to put oxygen on them. The expectation outside of ours or acute lung injury is going to be that they resolve their symptoms. So they could quickly resolve, but they're still sitting on two liters. So you really then have to really pay close attention to those numbers to see if it meets the criteria for failure. All right. I like that, Don. some good commentary, how it's not just the numbers, but what the patient looks like uh, and some important tips yeah. there. That is very key, and I am so glad that you said that. Um, so great answer to that one. Here's another one that Brian received. We have a problem with malnutrition. It actually meets the Aspen criteria, and the provider agrees with the query, but does not really expand on it in their specific documentation and we are being denied on those. Do you have any advice on this situation? The dietitian assessment is pulled into the progress note, but the provider is not specifically speaking to it additionally, and the patient is being monitored and receives supplements. Mm -hmm. Oh boy, this is a very, very common scenario. I think way too common. Um, first of all, I'll speak to Aspen. There were several things in that. Um, question. But I'm going to speak to aspirin, aspirin criteria first. Now, aspirin is a great criteria to follow, but just like all criteria, it's not, mm, it's not going to prevent denials, basically, depending on the scenario. You've got to tighten these types of cases up really tight. So when the provider agrees with the query and they don't expand on it, in other words, the only answer the only way, the only place that any type of the degree of malnutrition is documented is in the query. That is a widespread problem as well. And that is a separate issue with a separate answer. So, you know, first we'll talk about Aspen and then we'll talk about the provider documentation issues. And then the dietitian assessment is pulled into the progress note. The provider doesn't speak to it additionally. In many facilities, this is triggered by a Braden score or some other scoring system that the hospital may have in place and not the actual physician consulting the dietitian. There lies one of the issues where they don't think to bring it in because their eye is on bigger things unless they're admitted for some type of GI or diet-related issue. So the very first one, going back to the Aspen criteria in and of itself. All right, Aspen is great until the OIG sends you a letter that they want 100 of your cases. That's when people tend to sit back and kind of wake up and say, oh, well, we went by Aspen. Now, again, Aspen is wonderful, but there's other forms of criteria that different providers are looking at in the industry, you know, just like most of our diagnoses have multiple standards. But with this particular one, the issue that we get into is in the acute phase. It's in the acuity. And I like to talk about malnutrition in the acuity with acute being mild, subacute being moderate, and then of course the severe being the severe chronic type of situation. So Aspen doesn't seem to support us with denial management 
or OIG audits. And that's not saying that it's their issue. It's saying that we've got to do more than Aspen. We've got to go outside the box on these cases, and we've got to pull out that critical thinking hat, look at that 10,000-foot view, and look at what is causing whatever degree we're looking at, be it mild, moderate, or severe, what is the contributing, what are the contributing factors in the case? So I kind of liken it to being a detective and we got to go gather the clues, not just the BMI, you know, the, the weight loss, the muscle mass, you know, those types of criteria that are being set forth. And chronicity is one of the Aspen criteria in that second subset. So we want to make sure that we really highlight the, the patient's story surrounding this diagnosis to kind of make it a defense, um, just an airtight case. That's the very biggest thing I can recommend. And then we also got to go into, well, what kind of supplements are they doing? Are they, are they doing, you know, just one a day? Are they doing three a day? Are they doing calorie counts? As many things as you can see with that dietary follow-up, a lot of times they'll start out just doing the supplements. And then they'll see that the patient really doesn't have an appetite. Or they'll be looking at the eyes and O's, and maybe they're not documented. So they'll start doing those calorie counts. You always want to pull all of that into the query. Now, if it's a Medicare case, segueing into the second piece, if it's a Medicare case, you know, there, there are coding clinics out there that talk about you know, it doesn't have, you can take an answer on the query because it is part of the medical record. It's part of the legal record. It's a legal document. It's discoverable. RAC, audit contractors, payers of commercial, you know, pet insurance companies, they all have access to these. So they do see the query. So it is, you appeal those, but the problem is getting the denial in the first place. So if we could go back to provider education, and, and I know this is easier said than done, trust me, I, I really work with this issue as well, and we see it in our facility, but we've got to get some accountability back to the providers. We've got to push back on them because we are starting to see more denials when it's only answered on the queries, and the problems do come in where we don't have that coding clinic that's going to work with those commercial payers. There, there's no regulatory authority with coding clinics. So anyone outside of the Medicare scope doesn't have to go by that. So that's where the problem lies. And one of the things that our AVP has done at Ardent is she has initiated a denial protocol where they've created the denial team within the CDI programs, but they also take those denials back to the providers. So there's a level of accountability there has to be an escalation policy built in that you can work with with this gamata naturally. But when the physicians start getting their cases that they've diagnosed or answered the query only on the query form and not written it into the progress note, there's a level of accountability. Nobody wants their diagnosis denied because now we're handing them the file and saying, hey, can you help us write the appeal on this? You know, in other words, how do you defend what, what you answered? So that is a good teacher. Unfortunately, um, you know, we try not to go there. We try to work that in through education and the onset, but that doesn't always mean that they comply with it. So right. I hope that helps. When it gets to the severe degree, if you're dealing with severe malnutrition, I strongly suggest that you build that case of that chronic condition and develop some protocols within your facility and how to handle it when it's only being stated on the query itself, because 
we all know in the industry, and these are public reports. You can go out there and you can look at COIG's assessment, their findings, their penalties, their fines, and all of the similarities that all of the facilities that have fought this battle have gone through. So to stay off the focus, there needs to be some oversight on the severe degree and some careful consideration of internal protocol. Mm-hmm. Good stuff, Don. I, I like your your comments again about the physician answered on the query, but is the, is is there enough support mm-hmm. in that in that chart? I think yeah. that's a big, and that's and that's really, you know, it's a it's a escalation issue, a cultural issue, it's an ed- educational issue with with getting that it is. in there. Yeah. And it's also a HEMA compliant practice act. You know, they. I mean, I have never read a query brief that does not talk about consistent documentation. And the other thought is, you know, as if I put my payer hat on and go back into the dark side in my old days, right? If I go back there and I look at all this data, let's say that the case is 10 days, and the only place that this diagnosis that is weighted, it's probably gonna shift your SOI, DRG, or SOI, ROM, excuse me, or your DRG, and I ask, well, how important was this? How much of a focus was this if it's only documented on the query? So that's a little bit of a payer's point of view from that that we need to take into consideration as well. Mm-hmm. Good point. Good, com- good comment from a, a listener. It says, our, our one problem with, with, is with documentation of malnutrition. Treatment is only a can of insure. This will kill this diagnosis every time. Um, as you said, maybe yeah. just that one one treatment, and that's all. Um, yeah. I think we have time for maybe one more question, Don. Uh, so okay. we'll switch back to the uh, the ARDS topic I mentioned, acute respiratory distress syndrome. So this this uh, caller had written to me earlier with, we are seeing situations in which respiratory failure is present on admission, but later in the stay it has progressed to ARDS or determined to be ARDS. We are seeing the ARDS then be coded as not present on admission. The patient has had similar presentation the entire stay. Do you recommend a query for POA present on admission or would it be that upon further study it's ARDS so it should be a POA of yes? It could be either or and yeah absolutely I mean they're definitely on the right track with the question. You know, POA status is definitely up there, but it's going to depend on the indicators in the case. It's going to depend on the patient presentation. Now, it's a sequela, but they're two independent diagnoses, you know, with each has their own set of standards. So when you get into the failure, if they came into failure, ARDS is a very quick onset. And if you've ever seen an ARDS patient clinically, you'll probably never forget it because these patients literally are drowning you know, their lungs are filling up with fluid. There's some distinct characteristics that you can go back to, and I'm speaking to the after study portion, which I think is always prudent to to do in these cases because they can come in, first of all, providers are all over the place on the standards that they're using to diagnose because art is difficult to diagnose. I mean, it can be masked, the pulmonary edema is there, the fluid in the lungs, you're going to have the wheezing, the rails, you're going to have the buildup, you're going to have the drop, the really quick drop in oxygenation. That's one of the biggest indicators from my clinical viewpoint of being at the bedside. 
So all of those factors go in. It does look like failure in the beginning. And maybe it takes a minute or two for them to conclude that it's art or agree that it's art. There's a lot of, you know, people disagreeing on what is art. But you're going to see bilateral infiltrates. They could also be calling it ground glass opacity. But the characteristic here is usually it's in both lungs. I've never seen a a patient clinically that didn't have the fluid in both lungs and it shows up like the infiltrate. So pneumonia is going to be factored into this. And then of course the acute CHF is going to be factored in as well as other things depending on their comorbidities. So go back and track it backwards to as far as you can with what the chest x-ray looked like, how fast this presentation was. And then most importantly, it's going to be, what did they do about it? Was this patient on two liters of nasal cannula? That's Probably not ARDS because ARDS usually takes aggressive ventilation because there's usually that positive end excitatory pressure, that peak that is needed to push those alveoli and keep it open because the whole issue with ARDS, I mean, this could be a class in and of itself, but the whole issue with ARDS is that membrane that the SIRS response is going on, inflammation is going out the roof, proteins are leaking, fluid is just making that alveolar hard to move. It's like a mini CHF, only it's happening within the lung, as within the alveoli, if you want to think of it like that. Pretend mm-hmm. the alveoli is the heart and it can't move, you know? So that's the whole issue with the PEEP. And then look at your vent settings. Are they on, you know, just the minimal vent setting, no pressure, no pressure support at 30%, or do they have five of PEEP, eight of PEEP? FiO2 is going up. They're on either a rate or they're on assist control or something is going on. And then track it back. But yes, always look for POA on this and always look for the after study. And most importantly, I think it's really important for a concurrent CDI to, to develop those engagements with the providers to find out how they're looking at this case because it is such a controversial diagnosis. And that way you always know to query if you can get where the providers are, you'll get to know who practices in what way. And I think it's a combination. So that's about the best I can do in this short amount of time with yeah. that one. Again, this, this could be a whole class in and of itself. Right. No, I think that was helpful. And uh, for me, I um, this reminds me of why I wasn't cut out to be a nurse when I hear you talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> I say that about IT. I could never do IT. I'd rather do bedpans than IT any day. (laughs) Yeah. That is good, though. And always asking if it's POA, you'll never be wrong in asking that question. Yep. Yeah. All right. Let's let's flip back to our um, audience poll again. We asked folks, pull that up here. uh, What would you like to see out of the Actus podcast in 2020? So probably not surprisingly, uh, majority, 55%, say they want more clinical or diagnosis chart review topics. Maybe we could consider ARDS next year. We'll, we'll, we'll take another look at that one. Um, so, But the next highest category here was a broader industry focus, 26% would like more information on denials, recoding, or regulations. Uh, 12% looking at those stretch topics, outpatients or CDI in new settings. Uh, 6% are looking at more management-focused topics, and then 1% other. Let me uh, let me just bounce back to some of the 
questions, uh, some of the comments that I got about other topics. Uh, let's see. So yeah, questions about DSM-5, um, both clinical and a broader range, more case studies, combination of these topics, uh, fractures, os osteoporotic, pathologic with provider education. Some interesting topics, Cer certainly gives me a lot of um, great information to use when I'm planning the 2020 schedule. So thanks everybody. As I always say, um, you can reach out to me with an email after the program as well, bmurphy at actus.org. This is how I get my, my show topics. So great information, everyone. Glad you're liking the show and, and a lot to consider here for, uh, for next year. All right, let me pause for just a moment here as we switch over to our uh, in the news segment. Let me pull something up here for everybody. There we go. So in the, in the news is again a regular segment featuring the latest news and industry updates relevant to the CDI profession. Uh, Don, I think you mentioned earlier uh, the OIG. We, had, we do have a couple of recent audit reports, uh, very long. Each one of these could be a show, but we're just going to give a couple highlights because there are a lot of similarities. There was two audit reports that I noted about Medicare hospital provider compliance. Uh, and they focused on the exact same um, uh, risk areas and they had similar findings and actually there was similar responses from each of the hospitals that were audited. So the first I'm showing here is uh, Carolina's Hospital. Uh, the OIG does provide these, they're on their website. And um, I'm gonna just scroll down here to sort of a summary page, what, what the OIG found with Carolina's. Uh, it states that the OIG selected for review a stratified random sample of 80 inpatient and 20 outpatient claims with payment totaling 1.5 million. Uh, that was over a two-year audit period, January 1st, 2016, through the end of December of 2017. Uh, OIG focused its audit on the risk areas that it identified as a result of prior OIG audits. Uh, it found that Carolina's hospital complied with Medicare billing requirements for 55 of 100 claims reviewed, but did not fully comply with the other 45 claims resulting in overpayments of 431,757. Um, that was a total, so the 45 claims, the way they break down is uh, 41 had billing errors according to the OIG and four outpatient had uh, billing errors resulting in that overpayment amount. Uh, what the OIG does, which understandably has a lot of folks worried, is uh, they extrapolate. So they, they look at the number of claims they reviewed in that window, and then they say, well, based on that audit sample, they're, they're estimating uh, overpayments of at least 3.4 million for this particular, uh, the Carolinas Hospital. Uh, and Carolinas disagreed with many of the findings because some of these, as we'll see in the reports here, are, are subjective. You know, many of them were based on inpatient rehab claims that didn't meet coverage requirements. Carolina has uh, disagreed, said a lot of these patients actually did qualify. So worth reading that in full. Um, that's one of the, these reports. The other one is very similar. It's a Medicare hospital compliance audit of St. Vincent uh, methodology is, is um, 
is the same, same period, January 1st, 2016 through December 31st, uh, 2017. Again, focused its, its uh, audit on uh, prior OIG audit risk areas. Uh, same methodology, inpatient claims specifically, um, inpatient rehab claims as well as um, Part A claims that it said should have been billed as outpatient or, or outpatient with observation instead of inpatient. They also did look at some DRGs and they looked at a few outpatient claims. Um, worth reading in total, again, I will link to these in the show notes after the program. Uh, but essentially, this in this particular case, the uh, OIG um, claims that of 145 inpatient and outpatient claims audited, 87 were complied with Medicare uh, requirements, 58 did not, resulting in 293,000. Um, and again, with the extrapolation that the hospital received an estimated $2.1 million in overpayments. And again, St. Vincent Hospital generally disagreed with most of the OIG's findings. Um, a lot to digest here. I noted that these, again, very similar. Out, there, there could be more coming, um, certainly of relevance to CDI professionals. But just curious, Don, if you had any any thoughts on these reports? Uh, you know, specifically uh, wh where they're finding most of their the errors again, and, and I say errors meaning their interpretation of an error is the is these earth claims in patient rehab facility claims uh, medical necessity denials I know CDI is not typically involved there but do you see any opportunity here for, for CDI professionals well I think that it's going to really surround the medical necessity and looking at sealing that up through the query process, I think that would be an opportunity to explore in the CDI realm. You know, I agree, we're not really involved in the rehab setting, but uh, it, the case does, again, it's that big picture. You know, what is the, what is preventing this from being treated on an outpatient basis versus needing to be admitted in a rehab to where ongoing care is needed? So I think there is opportunity there um, for the CDI profession and more investigation needs to be done in that arena. Right. Any thoughts, Charm, on these topics? You know, one of the things that both of them demonstrated that medical necessity, whether it's in rehab or in an inpatient stay, is very important. Um, and making sure that it meets. And, you know, CDI is just a part of that. But the inpatient rehab, I think we're going to see a lot of changes with different procedures that have been inpatient for many, many years where the patient has stayed. Now, all of a sudden, they're not staying in the hospital. One of the keys, though, is they have to be able to participate. So that that's one of the things. I think CDIs could do a lot in rehab, um, probably not what traditionally we might do in the inpatient setting, but making sure and reviewing that medical record to make sure all the bullet points um, are there and clearly documented. Right. Great. Thanks, Charm. Okay, we're gonna wrap up with just a very brief Actus update, because I know we're at the top of the hour here, but uh, Actus update is a regular feature bringing the latest updates on what's going on inside of Actus. We wanted to let you know that the 2020 Actus National Conference agenda has been finalized. We're currently working on the brochure. Uh, expect that out in, in uh, early January. This is just a sneak peek at some of our 
keynote speakers. Um, we'll get into these a little bit more, but we, we were essentially uh, have a keynote or in our general session speaker that kicks off each day of the conference. I'm, I'm very pleased to say that we have uh, Dr. Mitchell Levy, who's going to be talking about the uh, sepsis two to sepsis three transition. Um, and he is one of the nation's foremost authorities on both sepsis two and sepsis three, having served on the committees that developed uh, the definitions of these diagnoses. So he's gonna be presenting with us. We have two wonderful keynotes, uh, Mike Rayburn, on what if he's he's actually a singer and a guitarist and i think he'll be a great way to kick off the conference with some energy and then we're going to wrap up on day three with noel pickus pace who uh, is a olympian who had a um a serious uh, accident that derailed her olympic career but uh, she has a uh, an amazing story of triumph over that adversity so a lot more to come on the ACTUS conference uh, in the coming year. We'll be sharing all of our com complete speaker lineup here. But if you do want to check these out, this is on the ACTUS uh, webpage um, under events and education and our annual conference. It's right there available for you. And, and finally, I just wanted to say thank you to all of our members and listeners for a great 2019. I wrote a note in... Uh, Last week's CDI strategies, just thanking our members for all the work that we've done over the last year. And, uh, you know, without trying to sound too humble, um, you know, everything that we do as an association is a direct result of what, what our members help us with and, and our members contributing. Uh, we have an advisory board, we have certification committees, we have a regulatory committee, and they helped us with a number of uh, important initiatives that we accomplished in 2019. We changed our name. We published a new query practice brief in conjunction with AHIMA. We launched a new outpatient certification, started a scholarship program, had another couple of great conferences, on and on. I encourage you to check this note out. It does cover all that we accomplished in 2019 and I'm looking forward to an even better 2020. So thank you again for, um, for to our ACTUS members, but also just our listeners of the podcast and your great comments. Uh, we're looking to bring an even better ACTUS podcast to you next year. We're going to have actually a couple show up updates and upgrades, I'm being told by my, my staff here, including maybe some music and um, a couple new bells and whistles for the program. So We'll see what 2020 has in store for us. Brian, right. and thank you. Podcast yeah, is listened you. to by quite a few people. Um, Absolutely. And it's, a, it's a wonderful thing, and thank you very much for bringing it together. Well, I, I love doing it. And so we will be back here again at the beginning of 2020. Uh, we're going to be back on Thursday because Wednesday uh, is, is uh, the first day of the year, the new year. And assuming you'll all be off. I know I will be. Uh, but on Thursday, the Jan January 2nd, we're going to kick things off with the Clinical Truth. Portentous sounding show. Um, but I'm very excited for this first program of 2020. Again, if you have any suggestions, questions, or ideas for future programs, you know how to get me. bmurphy at actus.org. That'll do it. Take care, everyone. Thanks again to Dawn and Charm for joining us today. And uh, everyone, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. We'll see you next year. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Sharm. Same Thank to you. you. Yes. Bye-bye yeah. now. Bye now. Bye-bye.